From New York, this is Democracy Now! The organizers of the rebellion, betraying their country, their people, betrayed those who lured them into the crime. They lied to them, pushed them towards death, under fire, to shoot their own people. The Kremlin says it's dropped criminal charges against Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin and his mercenaries after he attempted to lead an aborted mutiny against the Russian military. Prigozhin's reportedly arrived in Belarus. Are Putin and Prigozhin dead men walking? We'll speak with James Risen, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for The Intercept, who covered the 1991 coup in Moscow. We'll also talk to Risen about newly leaked audio of former President Donald Trump talking about holding classified documents as he faces espionage charges. Isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm-hmm. Except it is like highly confidential yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. <laughs> And we look at James Risen's new book, The Last Honest Man, about a watershed moment in American intelligence history when Senator Frank Church led the Church Committee in investigating for the first time the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA. We have seen today the dark side of those activities where many Americans who were not even suspected of crime were not only spied upon, but they were harassed, they were discredited, and at times endangered. The Church Committee looked at U.S. assassination targets from Castro in Cuba to Chilean General René Schneider and Allende in Chile to Lumumba in Congo and Yemen, Vietnam. Risen says its investigation was so dangerous, three witnesses who testified were murdered. He also reveals new details about the role of the late Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg in the creation of the Church Committee. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The embattled head of the Wagner Group of Russian mercenaries reportedly arrived in Belarus to live in exile. Earlier today, the Kremlin said it had dropped criminal charges against Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin after he led a mutiny that saw an armored column advanced to within 120 miles of Moscow in a major test of Vladimir Putin's rule. On Monday, Prigozhin published his first public statement since calling off the mutiny Saturday, saying his forces were reacting to an attack by Russia's military that killed dozens of Wagner fighters. Despite the fact that we did not demonstrate any aggression, a missile strike was launched against us, and helicopters followed suit right after that. About 30 people, Wagner fighters, were killed. This incident served as a trigger which forced the Council of Wagner commanders to decide that we had to start the march immediately. In Moscow, President Vladimir Putin spoke to Russian soldiers outside the Kremlin earlier today, praising them for their defense of Russia's capital, which he said, quote, essentially prevented a civil war. Putin's remarks followed a short statement on national TV Monday evening in which he accused Wagner's leaders of treason, but offered the group's fighters a path to avoid prosecution. I thank those soldiers and commanders of the Wagner group who made the only right decision. They did not turn to fratricidal bloodshed. They stopped at the last line. 
Today you have the opportunity to continue serving Russia by entering into a contract with the Ministry of Defense or other law enforcement agencies, or to return to your family and friends. Whoever wants can go to Belarus. The promise I made will be fulfilled. In Ukraine, President Volodymyr Zelensky visited soldiers battling Russia's invasion on the Eastern Front and used his nightly address to praise Ukrainian troops for advancing, quote, in all directions. In Washington, D.C., the Biden administration is announcing a new military aid package for Ukraine today worth up to half a billion dollars. This comes after the Pentagon last week said an accounting error had freed up an additional $3.2 billion worth of funding for weapons and ammunition for Ukraine. This builds on another $3 billion in additional arms shipments the Pentagon announced in May, citing accounting mistakes. The commander of Sudan's paramilitary rapid support forces has announced a 48-hour unilateral ceasefire for the Muslim festival of Eid al-Adha. The declaration came as the United Nations Children Fund, UNICEF, warned more than 100,000 children fleeing violence in Sudan face new dangers amidst a desperate situation in refugee camps in neighboring Chad. UNICEF warned essential services such as water, shelter, health and education remain extremely limited for the more than 140,000 Sudanese refugees and 34,000 Chadian returnees who've crossed the border since fighting erupted in April between the rival factions of Sudan military junta. Many of the refugees are injured or lost loved ones as they fled rapidly rising levels of violence in Sudan. In the occupied West Bank, a mob of armed Israeli settlers stormed the village of Umsafa over the weekend, firing bullets at residents and setting fire to homes and vehicles. Several people were injured. This is Mohammed Radi, a Palestinian journalist who was shot at by an Israeli settler as he filmed the attack. We arrived in Umm Safa. There were dozens of settlers. They fired at the village. The moment one of the settlers saw us filming, he shot in our direction. Two of the bullets went into the camera. Then the camera blew up from the shooting. Thank God we are safe. In the last week alone, Israeli settlers have carried out at least 85 assaults on Palestinian towns in the West Bank. This comes as Israel's far-right government has approved the construction of thousands of new homes in illegal settlements across the West Bank, despite growing international condemnation. In the United States, the Supreme Court has ordered Louisiana to redraw a racially gerrymandered congressional map, siding with a lower court that ordered the state to create a second-majority black congressional district. Monday's ruling was celebrated by Louisiana's lone black Congress member, Troy Carter, who said in a healthy democracy, fair and equitable representation matters, unquote. Also on Monday, the Supreme Court cleared the way for survivors of sexual assault to sue Ohio State University for failing to protect them from predator Dr. Richard Strauss. In 2020, former Ohio State wrestler Adam DeSabato accused Republican Ohio Congress member Jim Jordan of begging him not to corroborate accounts of widespread sexual abuse perpetrated by Dr. Strauss after DeSabato's brother Mike exposed the abuse. In another ruling, the Supreme Court sided with the Biden administration over its immigration policy, allowing Immigration and Customs Enforcement to prioritize certain people for arrest and deportation. This week, the Supreme Court will rule on four other major cases. One seeks to ban the use of race-conscious college admissions policies. Another case asks the Supreme Court to embrace the independent state legislature theory, a radical reading of the Constitution that claims state lawmakers have sweeping authority to override courts, governors, and state constitutions. A third case 
case argues businesses have the right to discriminate against LGBTQIA people if they cite religious objections, and justices will rule on whether the Biden administration can proceed with a plan to eliminate up to $20,000 in federal student loan debt for many borrowers. Newly published audio reveals former President Trump showed a classified Pentagon document to a publisher, a writer and two staffers during a conversation at his Bedminster, New Jersey, golf club two years ago. In the tape, Trump is heard shuffling through papers as he describes a top secret Pentagon document revealing a plan by Joint Chiefs of Staff Chair General Mark Milley to attack Iran. Well, with Milley, uh, let me see that. I'll show you an example. He said that. I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. The 2021 recording, which was first aired by CNN, contradicts Trump's recent claim on Fox News that he did not have classified documents with him in the July 2021 meeting. Wait a minute. Let's see here. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm-hmm. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. Trump faces 31 counts of violating the Espionage Act through the willful retention of classified records. He also faces six counts, including obstruction of justice and false statements at a federal trial in Miami scheduled for August 14th. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. In Pennsylvania, a federal court in Pittsburgh has begun the penalty phase of the trial of the man who shot and killed 11 Jewish worshippers at the Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018. Last week, a federal jury found the gunman guilty of all 63 federal charges. Jurors will now decide whether he should be sent to death row in a federal prison in Indiana. Joe Biden campaigned on abolishing the federal death penalty during his 2020 presidential campaign. And the Justice Department has instituted a moratorium on federal executions. But the administration has continued to seek the death sentence in some cases. In Colorado, a shooter who killed five people and injured more than a dozen others at an LGBTQIA nightclub last November has been sentenced to more than 2,000 years in prison. Monday's sentencing came after the shooter pleaded guilty to five counts of first-degree murder and 46 counts of attempted murder at Club Q. In Florida's Broward County, jury deliberations had begun in a criminal case against Scott Peterson, a former police officer who's accused of child neglect and other charges for failing to confront the gunman who killed 17 people and wounded 17 others at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School on Valentine's Day in Parkland, Florida, 2018. It's believed to be the first time a U.S. police officer has faced criminal charges for inaction at a school shooting. This is Prosecutor Kristen Gomes speaking in closing arguments Monday. He was trained and he was armed. And when the moment came and he was called upon to act, he made a choice. At 2.23 p.m., Scott Peterson chose not to enter, knowing that those shots were being fired and at every time the trigger was being pulled, one of his students was dying. He chose to retreat, and then he instructed all responding officers to stay back. In Texas, three San Antonio police officers have been suspended without pay and arrested on murder charges after they shot and killed a 46-year-old woman in her own home. 
Melissa Perez was struck and killed by police gunfire as she brandished a hammer at officers while she appeared to be suffering a mental health crisis. San Antonio's police chief said Friday the actions of Sergeant Alfred Flores and officers Eliezer Alejandro and Nathaniel Villalobos were not consistent with the department's use of force policies and training. And Honduras human rights advocates are warning of possible violations after Honduran armed forces raided prisons nationwide and the government announced a massive crackdown on organized crime. The operation drew comparisons with neighboring El Salvador as photos emerged of prisoners wearing nothing but underwear, sitting in rows with their heads down and hands around the back of their necks while armed soldiers in riot gear watched over them. This is Colonel Fernando Munoz speaking to reporters after soldiers said they seized guns, ammunition and grenades from a prison in the city of Tamara, where at least 41 women were killed last week by accused gang members and possible complicity with prison authorities. Following the president's order, we have started transitioning the prisons from the national police to the military police. We have begun the searches in order to take control of the jails. And Mexican authorities have arrested the former head of Mexico's federal anti-kidnapping special unit in connection with the forced disappearance of 43 students from Ayotzinapa in 2014. Roberto Ramirez Gutierrez was taken into custody early Sunday morning. He was first arrested in 2015, accused of ordering the killing of the 43 students, but he was ultimately released three years later. Arrest warrants were also issued against eight other soldiers over their possible involvement in the mass kidnapping. To see our extensive coverage of Ayotzinapa, go to our website, democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, the War and Peace Report. When we come back... We spend the hour with James Risen, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for The Intercept. He covered the 1991 attempted coup in Moscow. We'll talk to him about developments in Russia, the espionage charges against Trump, and Risen's new book, The Last Honest Man, about a watershed moment in American intelligence history with the Church Committee hearings. Stay with us. Everywhere Still Alive by Kroonbin. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show with developments in Russia, as the embattled head of Russia's Wagner Group has reportedly arrived in Belarus to live in exile. Earlier today, the Kremlin said it had dropped criminal charges against Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin after he led a mutiny that saw an armored column of Russian mercenaries advance to within 120 miles of Moscow. 
On Monday, Prigozhin published his first public statements since calling off the mutiny on Saturday, saying his forces were reacting to an attack by Russia's military that killed dozens of Wagner fighters. None of the Wagner fighters was forced to take part in this march. Everybody knew its final goal. The goal of the march was to avoid destruction of the Wagner PMC and bring to responsibility those responsible, whose unprofessional actions caused a huge number of mistakes during the special military operation. Our decision to turn around was based on two important factors. The first factor is that we did not want to shed Russian blood. The second factor is that we were registering our protests and not seeking to overthrow the government of the country. This comes as Russian President Vladimir Putin spoke to Russian soldiers outside the Kremlin today, praising them for their defense of Russia's capital, which he said, quote, essentially prevented a civil war. Russia's RIA news agency reported Putin also spoke Tuesday with Saudi Arabia's crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, who offered his support. Putin attempted to reassert his authority in a national address Monday. An armed rebellion would have been suppressed in any case. The organizers of the rebellion, despite being inadequate, could not fail to understand this. However, the organizers of the rebellion, betraying their country, their people, betrayed those who lured them into the crime. They lied to them, pushed them towards death, under fire, to shoot their own people. It was precisely this outcome, fratricide, that Russia's enemy wanted both the neo-Nazi in Kiev and their Western masters, and all sorts of national traitors. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, President Volodymyr Zelensky visited soldiers on the front lines and used his nightly address to praise Ukrainian troops for advancing, quote, in all directions. For more, we begin today's show with James Risen, the two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, formerly with The New York Times, now with The Intercept, where he is senior national security correspondent. Jim Risen covered the 1991 attempted coup in Moscow for the Los Angeles Times. His latest article for The Intercept is headlined Prigozhin and Putin, Dead Men Walking. In the duel between the Wagner groups Evgeny Prigozhin and Russian President Vladimir Putin, both men lost their nerve. In a moment, we're going to talk about your new book, The Last Honest Man. Uh, but first, Jim, let's talk about this latest breaking news out of Russia. Why do you refer to Prigozhin and Putin as dead men walking? Well, I think uh, Prigozhin is clearly a threat as long as he's alive uh, to Putin. And Putin has uh, thrown a lot of people out of windows for a lot less than uh, what Prigozhin has done. Prigozhin now can claim that he wasn't really trying to stage a coup, but it sure looked like a coup to everybody else, including Putin. And I think he, you know, he came so close to uh, Moscow uh, and so close to seizing power, and then he seems to have lost his nerve and cut a last-second deal. Uh, with Putin through Lukashenko, the uh, Belarus dictator, and that now he's kind of skulking off to Belarus in exile. And I don't think it's possible for Putin to allow him to continue to uh, pose a threat to him uh, from Belarus. And uh, if, if we've seen anything from Putin's track record, it's that he kills his opponents or anybody he, th he thinks threatens his power. And he's done it to people, as I said earlier, to people who've uh, posed much less of a threat to him than Prigozhin does. And I think with Putin, 
he's been so weakened by this and it's as he's been exposed as a much weaker leader than anybody realized. I think this will embolden uh, a lot of his opponents, both in Russia and outside. I think it's going to embolden Ukraine and NATO to stand up more uh, consistently to uh, Russia and to Putin. And I think it's really a uh, devastating uh, uh event for his future as a leader. I, th I don't think he can survive much longer uh, unless he takes some more, far more dramatic action against uh, Prigozhin than he has in the past. Uh, Jim Horizon, in terms of the, 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 the causes of this revolt to begin with, I mean, this claim of Prigozhin that his forces were attacked by the Russian military, which uh, again would like many uh, events in this war, it's quite hard to tell what actually happened versus uh, what is being right. claimed to happen. Because there apparently had been right. an attempt by the Russian government to bring all of these private military groups under the military. Uh, and in, right. uh, not only the Wagner group, but there are several other private military groups that are functioning as part of the Russian uh, war effort. Uh, so was this right. really... Did this attempt, uh, this attack happen as far as you can tell? Has it been I It's still unclear whether it really happened or whether it's part of uh, Prigozhin's disinformation campaign because he's, uh, you know, that's what he's, he's really good at disinformation just like Putin is. Um, so it's unclear. But clearly, I think far earlier than this uh, supposed bombing, you know, Putin, I mean, Prigozhin was planning this. I think it's pretty obvious he was planning this for quite some time and maybe he used some rocket attack uh, as a predicate for a justification for going forward. I think, you know, the fact that he was able to march from Ukraine into Rostov and then north with virtually no opposition from the Russian military or the Russian security services must have been shocking to Putin. And I think is is going to embolden all of Putin's uh, any rivals that he has inside Russia. You know, he is he is as I said earlier, he's killed off most of his major rivals, and I just don't see how he's going to let Prigozhin live for very long. But read I think, a I comment. Also think Putin, Putin. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I wanted to read a comment, um, uh, email that we got uh, from the executive secretary of the Ukrainian pacifist movement, uh, Yuri Shalyazhenko. He wrote to us, quote, I think the main lesson of the Wagner mutiny is that Russian militarists, including even war criminals like Putin and Prigozhin, are capable of negotiating and stopping bloodshed. This is an additional argument why it's not only necessary for humanitarian reasons, but also it must be possible to cease fire in Ukraine and start peace talks, not prolong the war for multiple decades. He's saying in this case, though he calls them both war criminals, this should not be viewed as weakness, but as an opening for negotiation, even with the overall war, Jim. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. Um, I think it's possible that this may be the moment of weakness for Putin where maybe the West should see if he's ready to get out of Ukraine. Um, I think if he was smart, 
he would pull his troops out of Ukraine now to uh, solidify his power in Russia. Uh, you know, one of one of the vulnerabilities that Prigozhin exposed for Putin was that he had so much of the Russian army and security services in Ukraine that the door was open for Prigozhin to almost march right into Moscow. And so for a dictator like Putin, it's got to give you pause about how long you want to stay in Ukraine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it might be a you might see some possible opening for uh, trying to see if Putin is ready to get out of Ukraine. Uh, well, the, the former CIA analyst Mel Goodman has an article uh, today that, uh, along the same lines, but he's also saying that that would require the United States as well to offer uh, some uh, uh, some efforts to bring back the expansion of NATO as a means of getting a negotiated settlement. What's your sense of that? I don't think that's going to happen. I think what, uh, to me, what Ukraine, what the war in Ukraine has shown is that uh, Russia will attack, it, it, that Putin, prior to the Ukraine invasion, I don't know how he feels now after uh, the war has gone so badly, but he clearly was interested in trying to re rebuild the Soviet Union uh, in some fashion. You know, I think his he's gained much more control over Belarus. Uh, he's fought uh, wars in Georgia and uh, now in Ukraine. And so the, but all of those countries uh, have one thing in common, which is that they are not in NATO. He has not attacked any NATO country. And I think uh, I think the fact that. The Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia are in NATO, uh, has made them uh, an area that he's not going to attack, uh, even though I think he would love to have the Baltic states back in the Russian Empire. Uh, and the same for Poland and uh, other parts of what used to be known as the Warsaw Pact. So I think I don't think that um, NATO is going to turn back. I think, in fact, once the war is ended, I would bet a lot of money that Ukraine will uh, join NATO. I really want to get to your book, Jim, a fascinating uh, book called The Last Honest Man, the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia and the Kennedys and one senator's fight to save democracy. But first want to turn to the new developments um, in the charges that former President Trump violated the Espionage Act through the willful retention of classified records. On Monday night, CNN released an audio recording of Trump from a 2021 conversation at his Bedminster, New Jersey golf club when he discussed holding classified documents, knowing they were classified, knowing he hadn't declassified them, showing them to a publisher and a writer and his agent. In the tape, Trump is heard shuffling through the papers as he describes a top secret Pentagon document um, that Joint Chiefs of Staff Chair General Mark Milley had written, he said, uh, a document about attacking Iran and more. Recording first aired on CNN contradicts Trump's recent claim that he didn't have the classified documents. These are bad, sick people. That, but, was, that was your coup, you know. Against you. That's well, it started right at the like beginning. Like when Millie's talking about, oh, you were going to try to do a kid. No, they were trying right. to do that before you even were sworn in. That's right. No, trying yeah. to overthrow your election. Well, with Millie, uh, let me see that. I'll, I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. 
Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. Wow. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. It's pages long. Look. Mm. Wait a minute. Let's see here. Yeah. Yeah. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm -hmm. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. secret. <laughs> this is secret information. Yeah. Look, look at this. You attack. And Hillary would print that out all the time, you know. <laughs> she'd it, no, she'd send it to yeah. Anthony Weiner. Yeah. Yeah. The pervert. Um, by the way, isn't that incredible? Though? Yeah. I was just saying, because we were talking about it. <laughs> And you know, he said he wanted to attack Iran and what? And he said the papers. Did. It's pretty, wow. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably. Right? I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out a. Yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified. Yeah. It. Now I can't. You know, but this is. Yeah. Now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, it's so. I'm look. We here and I have. A, and you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe it's you. It's incredible, right? No, they, hey, bring they some, uh, bring some cokes in, please. So that audio aired on CNN of Trump. Um, uh, it comes as he's charged with violating the Espionage Act through the willful retention of classified records. He also faces six counts, including obstruction of justice and false statements at a federal trial in Miami scheduled for August 14th. For more on this, we continue with James Risen, the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter now with The Intercept, where he's senior national security correspondent, also director of First Looks Media, Media's Press Freedom Defense Fund. He was a target of the U.S. government's crackdown on journalists and whistleblowers himself and won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting at The New York Times about warrantless wiretapping of Americans by the National Security Agency. Jim waged a seven-year battle, risking jail after the Bush administration, then the Obama administration, sought to force him to testify and reveal his confidential sources in a leak investigation. He never gave in. The government finally backed down. Well, now he's written a piece for The Intercept headline, Don't Compare Donald Trump to Reality Winner. He's no whistleblower. He's just a thief. Uh, can you elaborate on this, Jim? Yeah, sure. I think uh, one of the uh, things that bothered me right after the Trump indictment was that there were a lot of pundits starting to compare Trump to uh, people who've been caught up in other espionage cases, including uh, reality winner uh, who was uh, a whistleblower about Russian efforts to hack into American election systems in the 2016 uh, presidential race. And I just thought it was a it was a ridiculous comparison because uh, Trump was just doing this for selfish uh, reasons. He clearly came to believe that keeping classified information would was like keeping uh, gold coins. It was a way of keeping something of value and just stealing uh, st stealing something of value from the government on his way out the door. Uh, I don't think he cared much about uh, public service or about uh the public interest in this information. He wanted to either sell it to uh, the highest bidder or to continue to use it to uh, gain status somehow. Uh, and so I think it was, it's a, just a, 
horrible comparison to talk in the same breath with people who have risked their lives uh, in order to uh, make the public aware of uh, government uh, abuses like, uh, you know, so many whistleblowers have. But, Jim, well, I agree with you that there's a major difference between whistleblowers and what Trump did. Uh, Aren't some skeptics of what's happening with this prosecution at least partially right? That, one, there's a a major problem of overclassification of documents by the government in this country. And also that this whole issue of the Espionage Act and uh, and the the dissemination of classified information has been weaponized by the government to go after people. Yeah, sure. Well, they did it. You know, they've done it in uh, in a million cases, um, including a case I was involved in. So I am I am no fan of the Espionage Act. I don't think that uh, it should be on the books. I think it should be repealed. Um, But I just find that the uh, irony is very thick here in this case where he was spending most all of his presidency prosecuting as many whistleblowers as possible and was trying to uh, jail his opponents, have his, have anybody who leaked investigated, and now he's caught up in it. Uh, so I'm not advocating this, this is the right uh, way to conduct government operations by having an espionage act. I just find it very... Uh, Ironic, and I, to me, it's kind of like Al Capone, who got uh, after he on his murderous reign in Chicago, ultimately uh, got caught up in a tax evasion case. Um, to me, that's you know, Trump is a criminal. Uh, he's a pathological liar, and uh, this is the it, the irony is this is the kind of the uh, t- Al Capone tax evasion case, in my opinion. It's something that that the government could get them on because they didn't get them on other things. And finally, just 10 seconds, uh, Walt Nauda is going to be arraigned today, Jim Risen. You have another piece talking about how lackeys always take the fall for President Trump. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he is a classic uh, Trump lackey. He's a low-level guy who probably had no idea what was going on. He just followed orders. And then Trump used him and abused him and set him up in a situation where uh, everything he was doing was illegal. And I'm sure Trump tried to convince this poor guy from the Navy that, uh, you know, he was the president and he could uh, he could set the laws. I'm sure it's somebody who had no idea what he was really doing and then finally got caught up because he, he agreed to lie and obstruct justice uh, for Trump. And so I think if he's smart, he'll flip on Trump. But the track record shows that very few of Trump's lackeys ever do flip on him. And a number go to jail. James Risen, uh, we're going to continue with you after break. Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, formerly with The New York Times, now with The Intercept. But next up, we're going to talk about your major new book, The Last Honest Man. The CIA, the FBI, the mafia and the Kennedys and one senator's fight to save democracy. We'll be talking about the FBI, the CIA. We'll be talking about assassination plots by the U.S. government against people like Castro, Lumumba and others. Stay with us. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. I was born sick, but I love you. Command me to be with 
Take Me to Church by Hozier. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Mimi Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We spend the rest of the hour with James Risen, the twice Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, formerly with The New York Times, now with The Intercept. He's just published a major new book that looks at a watershed moment in American intelligence history when Idaho Senator Frank Church led the Church Committee investigating for the first time the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA during hearings from 1975 to 76. It was officially called the Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities. This is Senator Frank Church speaking during one of the committee hearings. We have seen today the dark side of those activities, where many Americans who were not even suspected of crime uh, were not only spied upon, but they were harassed, they were discredited, and at times endangered. And this is another clip from the Church Committee Senate hearing, CIA Director William Colby testifying. He was asked if he found the work of the committee unwelcome. No, I do not. I've, as I've said to the chairman, uh, I welcome the chance to try to describe to the American people what intelligence is really about today. It's, uh, it is an opportunity to show how we Americans have modernized the whole concept of intelligence. So that's CIA Director William Colby testifying by the Church Committee, which investigated U.S. assassination targets from Castro in Cuba to Lumumba in uh, Congo to Yemen, Vietnam. This is the focus of the new book by James Risen, titled The Last Honest Man, the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia, and the Kennedys in One Senator's Fight to Save Democracy. Uh, Jim, this is a fascinating read. It is so important, even, what, some 50 years later. If you can talk about why you focused on Senator Church, who at one time hoped to be president of the United States, but the significance of these hearings and what you were most shocked by in the revelations uh, that he discovered um, around U.S. government activity around the world. Sure. Yeah. The reason I, I wanted to write this book was, you know, I was covering the CIA for The New York Times uh, at the time of 9-11. And uh, I was, uh, if you remember, Dick Cheney uh, started after 9-11, started complaining constantly that the reason the uh, CIA and the FBI had failed to uncover the terrorist plots was because of the church committee, which was a very odd thing to say. Uh, because the church committee had uh, taken place 25 years earlier, and Frank Church was long dead by that time. Uh, but it became the mantra of the Bush administration that it was the church committee's uh, tighter rules on uh, U.S. intelligence operations that had led to the weakness of intelligence, uh, which was a lie. Uh, but it was a very powerful lie that continued for years. And so I all, after... I started uh, reading about the church committee because of uh, Dick Cheney's uh, constant uh, carping about it. And I decided uh, eventually that I, it was something that I really wanted to write a book about. The church committee, I think, is probably the most important congressional investigation in modern American history. Uh, it was a watershed moment. 
in the history of uh, the CIA and the FBI and the NSA. Anybody who worked at those uh, the intelligence community knows that there is a before and after. There's a before the church committee and what we could get away with, and there's an after the church committee and what we were what rules we were now imposed on them to limit their power and their uh, flexibility. And I think that's, it's, it's, uh, you've got to get back into the mindset of the time and remember there was no congressional oversight whatsoever of the CIA, the FBI, or the NSA for three decades. And Frank Church was brought in, uh, this committee was created in 1975 for the, to conduct the very first oversight and very first investigation ever conducted of the CIA. And uh, at the time, you got to remember, the FBI was just as uh, much of a rogue organization. J. Edgar Hoover had just died, and he had run the organization since its founding, and no one had ever questioned his authority or his power. And the NSA at the time very few Americans even knew it existed. It was even more secretive, far more secretive even than it is today. Uh, and so the hearings were explosive and uh, they led to changes in the laws, changes in executive orders, uh, led to the creation of permanent congressional intelligence oversight. And it was, uh, it had a dramatic impact on American uh, national security policy. And, and Jim, you mentioned J. Edgar Hoover. He had died in 1972, a few years before the committee. Would this committee right. have even been possible had J. Edgar Hoover not uh, died? Because you you point out how how critical he was to the incipient development of a police state right here in the United States. I wonder if you could talk about that as well. His role uh, in uh, in yeah. developing this early motion move toward a police state. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when the church committee was was created, it was originally just going to be what they called the CIA committee, and they were just going to investigate the CIA. But church, Frank Church and others on the committee very quickly realized they had to investigate the FBI. And uh, Church and others later admitted they never would have been able to investigate the FBI at the time if J. Edgar Hoover was still alive. He was so powerful. Uh, he had been able to pressure and blackmail and intimidate everyone, both in Congress and in the White House, ever since, you know, uh, before World War II. He was probably the most uh, powerful secret uh, figure in modern American history. And he was able to turn the FBI into uh, like a Gestapo organization, especially in the post-World War II era, when uh, he began the, the, the whole communist red-baiting uh, witch hunts uh, and then moved on from uh, that in the 1960s to harass the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. Uh, and so he had a, this long history of uh, constant harassment of anyone who opposed him or opposed the status quo in the United States and he did it in a, a way that um, he had intimidated everyone in Congress who believed that he had blackmail material on them. Whether he did or not, they all believed it. And uh, so no one was willing to take him on uh, until uh, or even investigate the FBI in any meaningful way until he was dead. Uh, 
one of the one of the really interesting things that I learned was uh, the the famous uh, burglary of the FBI office in Medea, Pennsylvania, I think in 1971, uh, where the uh, burglars who were basically anti-war dissidents uh, took a bunch of documents and then began to understand what they were looking at uh, only after they had taken the documents and they started parceling them out to uh, members of Congress and journalists who they thought would would be helpful in uh, disclosing and airing um, the information that they were uh, providing to them. And they were sending it to them anonymously. And they were sending to very liberal members of Congress. And one of the things that I learned that was shocking was that those members of Congress immediately turned them back to the FBI without doing anything with them. And uh, some of the journalists they sent them to did the same thing. And it was, it just showed showed how powerful the hold J. Edgar Hoover had on people because he was still alive at that time. And your uh, your review and uh, reporting on several of the major assassination attempts uh, that uh, that government agencies, especially the CIA, were involved in. You spent a lot of time talking back about the key mafia figures, uh, uh, Johnny Roselli, a mobster from California, and and uh, Sam Giancana, uh, another mobster, a key mobster from Chicago. They were both assassinated. One. After testifying before the church commission and the other one just before he was about to testify right. before the, the church committee. Could you, uh, for right. those, especially for younger, for younger listeners and viewers who are not aware of this whole, uh, this whole issue of uh, what happened with attempt to kill Castro and the Kennedy assassination, could you go through some of that? Yeah, yeah. In the, in, uh, at the end of the Eisenhower administration, uh, the CIA uh, decided, you know, Dwight Eisenhower was very interested. It was pushing uh, the CIA to try to kill Castro. Uh, and uh, the CIA decided that one way they could do it is to uh, form an, a secret alliance with the mafia. And so they had a they arranged for a former FBI agent named Bob Mayhew, who had been who was also on contract with the CIA to contact uh, mobsters around the country to see if they would form an alliance to work with the CIA to get into uh, to Cuba and kill Castro. And so he first contacted Johnny Rosselli, who was a flamboyant mobster, both operating both in Los Angeles and Las Vegas. And Rosselli then contacted Sam Giancana, who was the uh, boss of the Chicago mob, and uh, the two of them then uh, contacted Santo Traficante, who was the mob boss of Florida and who had longtime uh, op- casino operations in Cuba before Castro took over. And so they went with Mayhew to Miami Beach and set up a shop in the Fountain Blue Hotel to try to figure out how to uh, get poisons to uh, somebody close to Castro who could kill him. But the uh, the plot kind of unraveled very quickly because Giancana had a girlfriend in, uh, Las, in Las Vegas, uh, Phyllis McGuire, one of the famous McGuire sisters of a singing act. And he was, he was convinced that she was sleeping with a, co- a stand-up comedian named Dan Rowan. 
who later became famous in the Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In show in the late 60s. Uh, and so he wanted to leave and go back to Las Vegas and maybe kill Dan Rowan. Uh, but Bob Mayhew convinced him to stay and keep working on Castro uh, while he got a private investigator to go wiretap uh, Phyllis McGuire to see if it was true. And the uh, private investigator he hired to wiretap Phyllis McGuire did a, a shoddy job, and the local police found the wiretap uh, and called the FBI. And suddenly, J. Edgar Hoover was pulling a thread and finding out all about, through the, the arrest in uh, Las Vegas and the investigation of the wiretap of Phyllis McGuire, they found out about the CIA's uh, mafia alliance. And then that led them to find that Sam Giancana had another mistress uh, named Judith Campbell, who at the same time was also sleeping with President Kennedy. And so very quickly, uh, Jagger Hoover had blackmail material on uh, President Kennedy, and he confronted uh, Robert Kennedy, his brother, who was the attorney general at the time, and then he also confronted President Kennedy. And it's very clear, if you look at the timing, and the, uh, is that what he wanted was greater freedom to act to spy on Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. And it wasn't long after he confronted the Kennedys with this blackmail material about the fact that Kennedy was sharing the same mistress as Sam Giancana that the Kennedys approved the wiretapping of Martin Luther King by the FBI. And so it was a very convoluted story, but it's probably one of the most fascinating stories in the history of the CIA and the FBI. And, and Jim Risen, if you can continue on that, uh, the wiretapping of Dr. King, a man who, and especially in Jonathan Igg's new biography, uh, King, A Life, talks about how Dr. Martin Luther King suffered from severe depression, was hospitalized a number of times, and how they tried to drive him to suicide, and what the Kennedys right. knew and when they knew it, Jim. Right. One of the things that uh, became clear is that Hoover had been obsessed with uh, King beginning in the late 1950s. As soon as King began to rise to uh, prominence after the Montgomery uh, uh, bus boycott, uh, he was uh, in the sights of Hoover. And Hoover began to be uh, very quickly became convinced that uh, the King and his uh, civil rights movement were controlled by Moscow and that they were communist puppets. Uh, and he, there were uh, two members of the of King's uh, uh, organization that had some background in uh, the American Communist Party, but there was no evidence of any real influence, communist influence in the uh, civil rights movement. And the FBI staff, the intelligence uh, division staff, continually told uh, Hoover that, and he kept telling them that he didn't agree with them and he wanted them to change their opinion and change their reports. And he put so much pressure on them that they finally just began to harass, uh, come up with plots to harass King however they could. Originally, the wiretapping that the Kennedys approved was supposed to be to find 
communist infiltration in uh, King's movement. Uh, but very quickly, they realized they weren't, there was no evidence of that, but they were finding evidence that he was having affairs, extramarital affairs. And so they began to focus on his extramarital affairs and then tried, then ultimately, once he uh, won, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, they, uh, that so enraged Hoover that he uh, and uh, his uh, intelligence chief, William Sullivan, began to uh, set up a, uh, a thing where they record, took all the recordings, uh, highlights of the recordings uh, of the wiretaps of his extramarital affairs, and sent them to uh, his house, along with a note saying, um, you have 34 days, you know what you should do, uh, meaning essentially that he, I think he was about to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize and they wanted to, him to kill himself before that. Can you, uh, can it, you talk about, um, uh, in this book, uh, the revelations, what you learned in talking to, it's hard to say, the late Dan Ellsberg, but Daniel Ellsberg, who's just died, um, the right. information of what he gave to Frank Church and how this relates to the assassination of the um, leader, Diem. Yeah, I mean, he gave he had a lot of information about uh, Vietnam, but he also just to step back one one step, uh, he had uh, provide. He told me while I was interviewing him the whole backstory to how he ended up leaking the Pentagon Papers and how it and he first went to uh, J. William Fulbright, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, to try to leak. The, uh, to get the Senate to conduct hearings, and Fulbright re, uh, refused to do it, and he put the Pentagon Papers, I think in 1969, he, he put them in a safe at the Foreign Relations Committee and didn't do anything with them. And that was one of the reasons, ultimately, that, uh, that, that uh, Ellsberg went to the New York Times was because he had kept going to uh, this, uh, the Senate and being turned down, that ultimately led um, Fulbright, who was so embarrassed by what happened, it led him to leak information to later to Jack Anderson about the CIA and ITT's uh, uh, work in Chile to overthrow Salvador Allende. And that then led to the creation of a subcommittee to investigate all uh, Chile uh, that was chaired by Frank Church, which was a subcommittee that kind of led to the creation of the Church Committee and his larger investigation of the CIA. So it was a very, it was kind of an indirect investigation uh, in tie. But and then he later also provided information to Church about the Diem assassination and to the fact that uh, there was evidence that Kennedy knew about. Uh, he, he understood in detail what was going to happen in the uh, coup plots against Diem that uh, the CIA was involved with. Uh, and the question really boils down to whether or not uh, Kennedy, Kennedy clearly knew there was going to be violence. And, uh, and the question was whether he actually knew that the assassination was, was going to be uh, conducted or not. But it was it was interesting. He he really wanted to uh, provide new documents 
to the church committee, and so we met privately with church. Uh, Jim, I wanted to ask you briefly about another pivotal assassination, the killing of Patrice Lumumba and the involvement of the CIA in that. You write about that in your book as well. Yeah, the Lumumba uh, the, the, uh, was one of the uh, assassinations of foreign leaders, along with Castro and others, that the church committee investigated uh, and really exposed for the first time. <clears throat> they, um, the CIA, if you remember, Congo was in the midst of uh, uh, extreme violence because it was uh, a Belgian colony, and Belgium had been uh, pressured to... Uh, get, grant its independence, and Patrice Lumumba was the first independent uh, leader of the independent uh, country. But Belgium very quickly uh, wanted to regain control. They realized they kind of had uh, buyer's remorse about uh, granting Belgium its, I mean, granting Congo its independence. Jim, I want to warn and, you. You just uh, have a minute. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, anyway, so. Uh, Patrice Lumumba was overthrown with the backing of Belgium and the CIA, uh, and then he was uh, assassinated. And the question really was uh, the role of the CIA in that assassination, I believe, was much stronger than what the CIA has said over the decades. Uh, there's, there's clearly, uh, the CIA helped track uh, uh, Lumumba as he tried to escape and uh, also had sent hitmen to uh, Congo to try to kill him. So it was, a, it was very clear that the CIA played a pivotal role in all that. James Risen, we're going to do part two of this discussion, and we're going to talk more about what ultimately um, the Church Committee was able to publicly expose um, with these assassinations. James Risen, the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter at The Intercept, his new book is called The Last Honest Man, the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia, and the Kennedys, and One Senator's Fight to Save Democracy. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. 